We've all gotten used to pulling up our phones and opening maybe it's Waze or Apple Maps or Google Maps or whatever your map du jour is in order to figure out where in the world we're going. We seem to trust these maps so well and yet I've heard so many stories and experienced so many times that those maps are wrong. One time I was heading home from Malibu with my family. We'd done a little camping trip on the beach and we were driving through a particular town and uh, somehow got mis, you know, directed off the freeway and dialed into the map and went, told us to turn left. I turned left to have a cop pull me over right there because that had just been changed from a left-hand turn lane to a no left turn at all. At which point suddenly I'm realizing I can't trust this thing. It's lying to me. Uh, I had a friend, Stephen, you know, who's preached a few times. He actually dialed in Golden Corral to find one and it took him all the way out a very dirt street in the middle of nowhere. He just decided we're going to figure out where this goes because he was curious. It led him to an old ranch called the Golden Corral and he's going, this is ridiculous. Maps don't always get us to where we want to go. And so in many cases, we don't even trust them. Well, I don't even trust them anymore. I'll, I'll take my own routes. I'll know exactly my own town, where I should go and how to get around traffic and things like that. And the same thing may be for you, because here's the thing, when it comes to leadership, when it comes to following something, trust and leadership go hand in hand. Trust and following are connected. And in this entire series, what we've been talking about is that very idea of trusting those who are leading you so that we can follow them. Uh, the bottom line is we've been seeing in the series that as it goes with leaders, so goes the church. And so when you've got bad leaders, it rots the church. But when you've got good leaders, it preserves the church. And so what we've been looking at is why uh, is what needs to be the core of leadership and why we should follow these kind of leaders. In a world where leadership, to be quite honest, has been pretty messed up. And so we've been examining a certain section of scripture in the book of 1 Timothy. And here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're continuing on a leadership book where it's teaching pastors and it's teaching leaders how they should lead in the church. And this leads us as congregants, this leads all of us to know how we should be because the bottom line again is, as the leaders go, so goes the church. Now, We've been talking about a group of people called deacons. And deacons are those staff members, those leadership volunteers that are running kind of the church under the oversight of elders. And um, we, we looked at that and we thought, man, that's awesome. They get the work done. They're out there leading people to get the work done. But why would you follow them? What's the core of a deacon? What's the core of a staff? What is the core in these cases? And why should we be able to follow them? Well, again, it comes down to character and trust. And that's what we're going to see here in this section. As you open it up there, again, just some background information as we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's a leadership book, and Paul, the apostle, has been sending Timothy back to his church in Ephesus, back to Paul's church in Ephesus, to basically take and remove some false teachers false elders, and reinstate them. In addition to this, he's starting to put in some other layers of leadership. And as he's getting engaged, he, he's beginning to call the deacons now, these, these other leaders, these servant leaders, into action, into a character. And the bottom line is, in the section we're going to be looking at, I want you to walk away with one thought. The character of leadership, the character of any leader, enables the activity of the church. When it comes to deacons, when it comes to elders, it is this character of our leadership that's going to enable you and me to follow, to get engaged and get active in the church. 
So the character of the leadership enables the activity of the church. And that is really what Paul is getting at here in this 1 Timothy chapter 3 section. If you've got it there, let's take a look. Because the first thing he's going to let us know is that a leader's character must enable trust. We're, we're trying to build trust here, and so the character has to enable this trust. Here's how he says it, beginning here in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. In fact, what's interesting is when he flips over to the next group, he talks about uh, the deaconesses, he's going to go into the same concept. He says, though their wives, likewise, this is verse 11, must be dignified, right? Not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Both times we see this word dignified. Now, this word is an interesting one. It means someone who's taking their job seriously enough that you can respect them. And that's the idea of trust. Trust is given to those we respect. We see somebody's taking their job seriously. They're taking it critically minded. They're going for it. They're going to get it done. And we're like, I'm, I'm with that guy. They're not just standing still letting the grass grow under their feet, right? They're engaged and they're moving forward in a dignified manner, in a way that is respectable that you can trust. Now, before I move forward, yes, I did use the word deaconess. And uh, for some of you, that's going to be a problem spot. Others of you, that's going, it's not. And another part's going to be a problem spot. But what I want you to see here is in this text, it uses their wives. This is the ESV. And I think the ESV is using an interpretation here. Because if you look at the text, it doesn't use the word wives. It uses the word women. And it's not their women. It's just women. It just jumps out there. And so what's interesting about this is some people have translated this as deacons' wives. Others people have translated this as deaconesses. Now, I hold to more of the deaconess side, and why? Because it, it seems odd to me that we would suddenly be addressing deacons and suddenly flip to their wives when addressing elders. We never talked about their wives. And elders are a more important position. And we know they're supposed to be married, all that stuff, right? And yet we don't stop to talk about an elder's wife. We, we stop and only talk about a deacon's wife. Um, second is it seems strange that they would use the word likewise. You know, their wives, likewise, just like the deacons, need to be like the deacons. And this is important to note because what we want to see is we're talking about people who are to be in the same categories. And so there's a sense here that, that it's singling out these women as a particular group within deacons. In fact, I'm pick right back up on deacons just after this verse. And so to me, it looks like it's talking about the same concept. These are deacons and deaconesses, men and women who are acting as staff or acting as servants in the church, leading groups of people to get needs met. How that works out in different churches is important. The only thing is that, again, clearly, the only place where women in the church aren't to serve as a senior pastorate and the elders. And that's what we saw a few um, in the past in our other series. And we saw that during our examination of elders. And that will bother some of you. And so, look, we're kind of in that middle zone. We're, we're bugging everybody. But the bottom line is that this is talking about staff, women who are on staff, staff, uh, volunteer leaders who are women. And there's a certain... Uh, character that they're supposed to have. If you want to look at further ideas of this, you can look at Phoebe in Romans 16.1, who was sent with the letter to the Romans to and called a deaconess. It's a very interesting section. But all this aside, whether you agree with this or not, the bottom line is women in the church are to have the same kind of character as the men in the church when it comes to our leadership and serving. And so that's the core. We're talking about character. And are we taking our ministries seriously? 
Are you looking at staff? Are, are you talking to your ministry leaders? Do you see them taking it seriously? I believe they are. We're watching them. They, are, they care about these ministries. They want to see things done and people cared for and discipled. And so, look, when you care about it, that's awesome because that is the whole point. All of us should be taking it seriously, living this out in a respectable manner that people would be willing to follow. Because, again, the character of the leadership enables the activity of the church. And so this character is going to bring about trust. Now, it's going to get further in. What does this dignified look like? Well, both times in both verses, it's going to talk about the fact that dignified people do a few things. Number one, the, the dignified, they're not double-tongued and, for, and they're not slanders. Now, what's interesting about this text is double-tongued and slanders are both terminologies used of the devil. In fact, what's interesting is the double-tongued is the forked tongue, the person who's, who speaks out of both sides of their mouth. You know, they're two-faced, right? They're going to tell you one thing on one side, pat your back, and <laughs> you're awesome. I hate that guy. You know, that kind of a thing. And that's, that's the situation of a person who is double-tongued, two-story. Two, they're telling you one thing and then doing a different thing behind your back. At the same time, slanders are those who aren't addressing issues, but they're ready to spread it to everybody about how bad they are and how bad other people are. In essence, both of these, the diabolos, which is a slander, the devil, and the forked tongue person are not fit for leadership. This is critical because if we have liars in our leadership, how are they going to bring people to understand the gospel? How are you going to trust that they're leading you in a true direction? How are you going to trust that they're guiding you? Because leaders need to speak the truth even when it's difficult. Leaders need to lay out the truth even when it's not popular. Because ultimately, when it comes to the truth, the gospel's at stake. If our leadership can't be trusted in telling the truth and talking about people, then how can we trust them when they're telling us about Jesus? Right? That's the critical portion when it comes to leadership and truth-telling. And over the years, it's not easy. Sometimes I've had to tell too much about a scenario, and it makes it look bad. People are like, oh, you know, that's even worse. And it's like, yeah, I've had to accept that I've made mistakes, and I've had to announce them, and I've had to stand before congregations and explain positions. The elders have done the same thing. And leadership has to know how to speak the truth, even when we've done something wrong, because the bottom line is the gospel's at stake. And so there's a sense that, yeah, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to fail, but our goal is here to be honest about it, to open about it, to be as revealing about it as we can, because we've got to be people who are telling the truth. We can't tell one story on one side just to spin it and make it look awesome. Sometimes it just stinks. And we've got to say, that stinks. Now, there may be you know, hope and faith attached to those visions and dreams, but the bottom line is we can't tell two different stories. We can't butter a person up on one side and chop them down on the other. And that's where slandering comes in. Like, guys, we need to be a people who are willing to go straight to each other. Too often in churches, because of our conflict avoidant society, we will not go directly to people that we're frustrated with. Now, if you're upset with somebody, contact that person. Matthew 18 says go one-to-one. Then two to one. You know, if there's that issue, we want to do this. In fact, one of our leadership maxims here in our staff is to ensure that we cover these things. The bottom line is, hey, if you have a problem, you need to go tell them. If you don't tell them, I'm going to tell them. And then when they meet, they got to deal with it. If they can't get it done, then they both need to come to their supervisor and we'll work it out that way. Because the bottom line is we can't have stories being told without people being addressed. That's slander. 
We can't have false stories being told without somebody being able to address the issue. And so if there's a slander being brought forth, man, we got to be able to bring it to somebody so they can defend it or repent of it if it's true. And so that's the point. We don't want slanders. People who are ready to break people apart and, and create division because they have the inside knowledge. That's not respectable leadership. You can't trust those people. So we don't look for people who are doing that to put on staff, right? So second, we want to understand that respectable people aren't deluded in their thinking. Look, they, they, they think and they act with a, a sense of knowledge. Notice again what it says about deacons. It says deacons are to be dignified. They're not double-tongued. And it goes on to say, not addicted to much wine. All right, so they're not supposed to be controlled by another substance. They're not supposed to be out of their mind. I would put in this drugs and marijuana and stuff like this that are literally causing you to, to not be able to think clearly. That was the point of being somebody who's addicted to wine. You, you couldn't stop. You had an inability to control yourself. In fact, when it talks to the women, it says, be sober-minded. Both of these are concluding the concept that you need to be able to think rightly. You think without being deluded, without being drawn around. Now, alcohol, prescription drugs, marijuana, and these kind of things all delude the mind. And what I find actually fascinating is if you're addicted to these things, what often goes on is people are worshiping them above and beyond Jesus. They're almost devoted to them. I, mean, I find it strange, don't you, that people who love their marijuana, they'll wear marijuana socks, marijuana t-shirts, they'll get marijuana leaves tattooed on their arms. I mean, they almost worship this plant because they love what they get from it. Now, that's, that is a type of devotion. That's a type of worship. Man, the people who are strong party drinkers, man, they know all their drinks. They know how to mix them. They've got their, they're ready to go. They're ready to, they can't have a party without a drink. They can't have a party without, they can't have fun without these things. And that's the caution right there. Who are we devoted to? What is guiding and leading our life, our fun? Are we doing it to the glory of God or are we doing it for the entertainment of ourselves? And party culture, to be quite honest, in these kind of situations isn't a respectable thing, to be quite honest. I know we have them in our leaders in our corporate world. I know we have it all over the place. But in a church, we're supposed to be representing the gospel. We're a devotion to Jesus, a focus on Him. Uh, if we see somebody's constantly drunk and out of their control, we don't typically to be quite honest, respect that kind of a leader, even in the corporate world. And so as leaders in the church, we want to have a self-control over these kinds of things. We want a sober-mindedness. We want to be thinking with clarity because we respect people who step back, are capable of thinking through things, who are capable of going through stress and pondering it, not quick to respond on the social media and say, this is how it is. No, give them time to think, give them time to ponder. It may even be a year before anything shakes out to where we can really make an adjudication. That is a respectable thing in my book, not the quick knee-jerk reactionary things. We want sober-minded, careful thinking from our leadership because you wanna know that they're adjudicating an issue well. You wanna know they're thinking through it and they're dealing with something well. And so a leader needs to have clear thinking and they need to also in this dignified thing, be somebody who is out to get the job done and not make themselves wealthy. I mean, how many times have we checked in to some of these online or TV people and just feels like all they want to do is bring in the dough, right? They've got their personal jets and their giant mansions and stuff. And it just, it has turned people away from giving to churches when the vast majority of pastors aren't doing that at all. The vast majority of pastors, to be quite honest, are struggling to even own their home and make a, and make a living. But because of some People who are literally greedy for dishonest gain, and this is what they're not supposed to be, have caused the church not to trust 
the leadership with their money. And it's why, to be quite honest, even at Olive Branch, while we say a lot, hey, you guys are generous, uh, you know, in honesty, to be truth, the ones that give, you guys are generous. But, to be, but there's a vast majority of our congregation that doesn't give, or maybe gives a very little bit, does what we would call tipping. And I understand, there has been an entire culture that's been created that makes people go like, well, the church is just out for our money. They, they just want our money. And here's the thing, the leadership is not to be out for a dishonest gain, but they're also not supposed to be a burden. Let me clarify this. Later, Timothy is being, going to be told, hey, for the elders who preach and teach, man, they should be worthy of, a, of another, um, of a double honor, he says in, in chapter 5, verse 17. Let me just read that. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer it deserves his wages. And this is interesting because classically, we would say then, at least if you have a pastor and a staff member, somebody who is working for the church, let's at least allow them to live in the area that they live in, right? I mean, we want to pay them so they're not a burden. In fact, don't we want our pastors and our leadership to be those who example giving so that they have something to give? And this is the critical point that we're not looking for them to be rich, not for greedy, dishonest gain. That's not the point, but at least to be able to live in the area, to minister without worry, so they can give their all. But a lot of pastors are locked into vocational training and where they're doing two different jobs. They can't focus on their churches. There's a lot of small churches out there where that's the case, where staff members are barely getting their work done at church because they've they got to go be a barista half the time of their life and they got family at home and it just gets messy. Look, in a church like Olive Branch, what we believe is as the church gives rightly, people can live at the right standard so they can give to even those who may not be at that standard. We want everybody to be able to live well and so we can give well. And that's really the case. Not about dishonest gain where they're owning jets and great, you know, you know, great, you know, a fleet of Teslas or something like that. No, no, we want to ensure that our leadership, while able to live well and give well and are doing right with their finances, but they're not making bank on, on the church. That's not the goal. That money is for ministry, and the leadership is there to lead for ministry and to make it happen. And so we want to see them do that. And so that leads to that second part. They're faithful in all things. Look, the faithful are those who are ready to just go for it. doesn't matter how difficult it gets. doesn't matter how much they want to quit and instantaneously give up. No, they're going to press in and keep serving and keep caring, no matter how bad the needs are, how difficult the situation is. They're dedicated and serious. doesn't even matter about the money. The money is on the congregation side. Their side is about the work and the ministry. And so we bless those people. And that's the point. When you see a pastor, when you see a, a leadership team, when you see somebody who's dedicated to their work, pushing hard, making it, making it movement, and they have these kind of qualities, man, you're ready to follow them. Because the character enables trust. And the leadership's character, my friends, is what's going to move the activity of the church forward. But it's not just the character. Paul's going to go on and tell us there's something else. A leader's belief also needs to enable trust. And this is critical. The leader's belief, what they trust in, who they believe in, and what they think about the faith enables trust in a church. And so, no, notice how Paul puts this. They must hold, speaking of deacons again, they must hold to the mystery of the faith. Now, this mystery of the faith is actually going to be defined later in the text. We'll get there uh, next week as we start a new series. But right here in verse 9, again, he goes, They must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 
And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. I love this. Because this is a critical piece in our conversation. The leaders have to have, first of all, a functioning knowledge of the faith. And they need to know what they believe and why they believe it. I mean, who wants to follow a pastor who's sitting there going, well, I don't even know if God exists or if Jesus walked the earth, but you know I'm doing this. There are a lot of progressive churches out there with pastors who can't even claim what God is like from the Bible. And I go, why do you call yourself a church? Why do you call yourself a pastor? I'm not going, I'm going to tell you, look, I know our leadership and our staff, and we're constantly working at understanding our faith better, how to study our Bibles better, how to grow. And I want to challenge all of us because, you know, a doubting leader, man, somebody who can't hold to the faith is somebody that you're like, why are they in, why are they on staff? Why are they in leadership? So we want to be a people who know our faith well, and we hold it with a clear conscience. Now, this interesting thing about the word conscience, um, we would mean that, oh, it's without sin. or with, No, what he's getting at here is a clear loyalty. Man, they're dedicated to it. You wouldn't see them like, oh, well, I, I, I was dabbling with some Hinduism the other day and really thought this was cool. Now, they hold to Jesus with a clear loyalty. There's no doubt that they are a Jesus follower. There's no doubt that they love Jesus. They're after Jesus and they want Jesus to be their leader. And that is that loyalty that you would expect from somebody who is a deacon, somebody who is leading people in ministry. And so this is this critical thing. And that loyalty... Is going to come from being tested. What is interesting about this testing is that, to be quite honest, it's an examination. They need to live in such a manner that people see that they've lived it out. Now, testing is interesting. It may be that you've been approved. It may be that you've been tested and seen worthy or whatever, but spiritual maturity is a key piece in leadership. They know their faith, they hold to their faith, they've been tested in their faith. Maybe they've gone through doubts and they've answered them. Maybe they've gone through suffering and they've held on to their faith. Maybe they've worked through temptation, they've been able to overcome temptations. They've proven that this faith and this loyalty is critical in their life. That's what a, you're looking for a leader. Man, if you knew your leaders had been tested, if you knew your leaders knew their stuff, if you knew your leaders were willing to fight for their holiness and purity, they're going to fight for your holiness and purity. They're going to answer your questions. They're going to lead you well. Man, you're ready to follow somebody like that. And so belief engenders trust. It enables us to really walk after one of those people. And so we want to know, have these people been tested? Have they asked good questions? Have they dove in? Have they struggled? And if you've seen them first, then let them serve as deacons. If they prove themselves to be blameless, if they show that they are capable of walking with Christ. Um, and so interesting is Paul actually in 1 Corinthians tells the church, test yourselves. See if you're in the faith. Same terminology. And I believe one of the best ways to really test yourselves in a church is to be known by leadership. Step into ministry. I think a lot of people don't step into ministry, don't step into small groups because it's easier to be anonymous so that you don't have to be tested. And yet all of us need to be tested. All of us need to understand in our world of comforts, it's the testing we fear the most because we fear we may be shown to be false. Paul says, hold on, you need to test yourself. Are you a Christian or is it a name you hold on to? Have you tested your faith? Have you asked the doubting questions? Have you leaned into the nagging issues? Because right now there's an entire world out there of these ex-leaders, ex-evangelicals, who claimed they were leaders once who didn't do this. And when the test came, they failed. And now they write about their deconversions all over the internet on an Instagram. And people are like, oh my gosh, yeah, guess what? 
They failed the test. They shouldn't have been leaders. I'd rather you be tested now before you're in a leadership position. I'd rather you be tested now before you find it dangerous to enter into the doubts and struggles. And so I invite you, jump in. Maybe you need to go to starting point. Maybe you need to just get in contact with a, one of our elders and one of our, one of our pastors and leaders and say, hey, I've got these questions. I've got these struggles. I want to know some answers. And we go, absolutely, we want to help you out. Because it's not something that we want to do is follow somebody who is wrestling through their faith while working as a leader of Christians. So put yourself to the test. Get involved in ministry. Put yourself under a leader. Get into a small group. Allow yourself to struggle through the issues so that you can begin to see that you can stand through that persecution, through that suffering and temptation, through those doubts and questions. And when you come out the other side, man, you'll be identified as somebody who could potentially step into leadership. Because leaders' faith is something that drives it forward, especially in the family. It goes on. It says this, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. The place that leadership begins to be developed often is in the home. It's where we need to lead our children. It's where we need to lead and make decisions. And we need to govern our own finances. And in our culture, there's a lot to managing a home. Some of us are not as good at it as others. But even in as the elders are supposed to do this, so are the deacons. They're supposed to be people who have sexual fidelity. They're supposed to be dedicated to their marriage if they are married. Doesn't mean they're all married, doesn't mean they all have to be married, but if they are, they are sexually, they have a sexual fidelity. They are after their wife. If they're single, they are abstinent and they have a sexual fidelity. They're after Christ, right? So we see the sexual fidelity going on and they manage their households well. This is the same thing. Stephen kind of went over this. I don't need to go over it again, but we're looking at the fact that if you look into somebody's home and it's a disorganized mess and it's all over the map and you see that these people can't organize their own lives, you go like, well, time out a minute. How are you going to organize a church? That's the question that would be asked. We want to know that people are growing in their organization and ability, especially at the staffing level, where we have to manage people and make clear decisions and guide and direct. Now, some of us are growing in these things, and others of us are excellent at these things. Some of us are great at the leadership and the vision casting. Some of us are good at the management. And so we know that what we want to be is a people who are doing a good job at what we're good at in our homes. And so there's an organization, and there's a clarity. And for you at home, the question is, how are you leading your family then? If we as Christians are supposed to be like our leaders, right, and, they, and we're supposed to have an organized home, where are you pointing your children to? Because that's really the question. Are you organizing their lives around their sports or around Christ? Around their education or Christ? Their vocation or Christ? Your vocation or Christ, right? So these are the cases that we have to understand and ask ourselves, how are we organized? I remember reading in a book by Vody Bauckham on, um, on family, he was uh, ministering to this family and his, their son had just gone off to college and 100% just dropped the faith. Was uh, making major, major inroads in the baseball world of college and, and the dad came in just lamenting like, what went wrong? What's going on? And Vody's just one of those guys who looks at him and says, what do you mean what's going on? He's like, you know, sir, just to be quite honest with you, you discipled your son in baseball because every time there was a there was church and there was a baseball tournament, you came for a minute and took him away. It, when it was youth group and he had a game, he went to the game, not the youth group. Now, let me ask you a question. Which did you say was more important than the priorities? And the dad had to look at him and say, you're absolutely right. How are you managing your household? Where are you aiming your children? 
Is Christ the centerpiece and the other things the way that we serve Christ? Or are these other things the centerpiece and, and serving Christ is just kind of this thing you do on the side? And that's the challenge for those of us who are going to follow leaders. And leaders are those who need to be aiming their children and their families in this direction. And so this leadership belief and this leadership character is what's going to engender our trust of our leaders. And so as we see these things, man, we're going to be willing to follow after them. But here's the thing. In the church, becoming a leader is optional. Character isn't. See, you may be sitting there going like, I'm not a leader. Greg, I don't care. Yeah, I'm great. I want my leaders to be like this, but I'm not going to be a leader. That's okay. Leadership is optional. There is no reason that you have to be a leader. Not everyone in the church is going to be a church leader. Now, you're going to lead somewhere, so I hope that you would have the character of a leader and that you would be like this, but I'll get into that in a minute. Leadership in the church is an optional thing. It's, all, it's something you don't have to be. There's not a slot for every single person to do leadership. We understand that. And so it's an optional thing, but the character isn't. Let, 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 let me show you how this works. First of all, if you do choose to be a leader, there are blessings that come with it. If you choose to get involved in the vocational ministry, you want to be a, maybe you don't get paid and you're a volunteer staff member, or maybe you, don't, you do get paid and one day you become a staff member, or you become an elder, um, and, and you're, you're not going to be paid for being an elder, but you're there to serve. Guys, those who serve well as deacons, they gain a good standing for themselves. This is a beautiful thing. There's an honor to being on a staff. There's an honor to being a leader. And to be quite honest, sometimes we treat leaders, and I'm coming from a place of hurt here and personally, but we can sometimes treat leaders as the lowest level in a church because we think, we realize, hey, they're, they're the servants. But yes, they're the servants of the church, but they have a good standing. Christ looks at the leaders in the church and says, you are in a place where I honor you. And so if you're a leader and, and you've been ignored, you're a leader and you've been pushed down, or you've been a leader in a church, previous churches and been treated miserably, so you're like, I'm never getting in there, know that even in that time, Christ honored you. Because it is a hard position. Everybody has an opinion about how, what you should do and how you should do it. And um, that's just the case. That's, that's, the, that's the way of the servant. They told Jesus how he should do things too, right? But what Paul wants to tell you is you have a good standing. You are honored in the church. You are honored in Christ. And we should remember that. Now, it's not to put us on pedestals and stuff like that. We worship Jesus, not our leaders. But we want our leaders to have that good, that good faith, that good belief. We want our leaders to have that good character and to serve well. That's a good standing. That's a right standing in the church. And here's the other blessing you'll gain. You'll gain great confidence in the faith that is in Christ. What does that mean? Well, a couple things. I'm going to gain confidence because I see God working through me. Now, I, I can tell you, sometimes you may be in a dark place where you're like, God, are you even using me? Are you even going to do anything about that? And suddenly a sermon hits or someone gets ministered too well. Or I've met uh, some of our staff members who are like, I didn't think anything was happening. And then this person got baptized. And these, these people over here start really understanding. I watched the lights turn on. It was so cool. That is a blessing and a confidence that God is using and working through you. Some of us gain confidence. You're going to gain confidence in the faith because you've had to go through suffering and you've worked through a hard time to come out the other side and God's kept you standing. You're like, the Lord obviously wants to do something and your faith grows and you step forward in a new manner and he meets you there. And suddenly you're like, God, this is awesome. But if it hadn't been for your leadership and your confidence in Christ and the faith, man, the church wouldn't have done something. Or maybe you gain confidence because you've gone through a certain testing of the church and they've approved of you. They said, yes, yes, we want you as a leader. 
There is something in that that says, wow, they value me. They say, yes, that I can do this. And that may challenge you to grow further and deeper, but that is something that you can walk with as a confidence because you've chosen to go the route of a leader. And remember, as you leaders go, so goes the church. And so that brings me back to that point. The bottom line is that, look, you don't have to be a leader. It's not required, but character is because leaders are given to be examples of the character that we're to have. Leaders are to be examples of where we're to go. And a character is what we're all called to develop. In a separate epistle written to the church of Rome, Paul says this. He says, not only that, not only have we received a, a peace with God through Jesus Christ, amen, our sins are forgiven, right, all that amazing stuff, but we rejoice in our sufferings. I say, what? Yeah, he flips even the worst case because these sufferings produce endurance. They produce a, an ability to press in and keep going. And that endurance produces a character. There's the word, and the character produces hope. That word character means you've been proven. All of us are called to be proven in Christ because we are going to walk through a time of testing. We're going to walk through this struggle. Like physical exercise, no pain, no gain. That's why it's always funny when my, um, my wife's grandmother was asked, hey, have you done your exercise today? And she'd go, yep, doing them right now. Right. There's no pain. There's no gain. That's ridiculous. That's not exercise, lifting your finger back and forth. Look, video games are an exercise, moving your thumb. You may have big thumbs, but the bottom line is, unless you're willing to press into the physical pain, you're not going to lose the pounds. You're not going to gain the muscle. You're not going to stay healthy. Unless you're willing to press into the Word of God and dig into it, you're not going to gain the spiritual wisdom. Unless you're willing to pray and work through and fast at times, you're not going to go to those spiritual depths in prayer. Unless you're willing to press in there and serve and even give up time and sacrifice for other people, you're not going to see the ministry grow. You're not going to see people come to Christ if you're not willing to invite them into your home and do things. Guys, where there is no pain, there's no gain. Where there's no suffering, there's no endurance. Where there's no endurance, there's no character. In other words, let me put it this way. The more comfortable you are, the less character you will have. The more comfortable you are, the less character you're going to have. And I believe that's the problem in our current society. We've become so comfortable. This word suffering is so anathema, so uh, that we aren't growing in any form of character, which makes the next generation a time of leadership struggle. Unless we call a generation, unless we call our generation into suffering, into struggle, into developing character, why would we want to follow the next generation of leaders. But here's the pause button on that. You are the next generation of leaders. You have the opportunity right now to engage in the things that we've talked about, of managing your home well, of being knowledgeable about the word, of testing yourself and seeing if you're in the faith, of being somebody who's going to be respectable and engage in ministry as God's called you to because he's given you a gift and he's put you in his family. He's given you this opportunity to engage in these ways and you don't have to be a weak charactered person. You can engage and watch what God begins to do. And that's my challenge to our church, that we would be a people who are going to fill in this gap. I can still remember sitting as a young student um, or senior in high school, listening to the youth speaker at the time talk about the fact that all of these great leaders were going to vanish one day, that I talked about at the beginning. All of them were going to die and be gone. And that meant we would have to step into the gap of the next generation. It's sad to know that he didn't understand that character was the portion that needed to be built there. His life ended up in a different direction. Doesn't, isn't doing ministry anymore. 
But that word welded into my head, man, who's going to fill those shoes? And that means, and the challenge to even me today is that we need to build character. You and I need to build character. We need to be a people of character. And it's not about the skill. It's not about the ability. It's about the core. And that core is that character because the character of the leadership enables the activity of the church. And we need new leaders. We need great leaders. And it means it's up to us at Olive Branch that we are studying this. Yes, there are other churches out there, but you're watching this. It's up to us at Olive Branch to be the people who build that character. Yeah, you, you don't have to be a leader. You don't have to step into that, but let's be a people of character. Let's be a people who are like Christ and press into that. I want to encourage you guys today that we would be a people like that because here's the bottom line. Bad leadership, it rots the church, but good leadership preserves the church. So let's all aim at the right core. The leadership core is character. Let's build it and let's have it. Let me pray over you. Father, as we close out this series, I ask that you would indeed just bless all those who are watching online, all those who are going to hear this in, in, in the live services, would you please allow us to be a people who are tested to press into character? God, build our character. We know that means we're asking for tough stuff. But um, God, where we're weak in the word, make us strong. We're weak in prayer, make us strong. We're weak in service, make us strong. We're weak in love, make us strong. God, we want to be a people of character. This world needs a group of charactered Christians. Prove us, God, that on the other side, we are attested and able to stand firm so that you, God, can work through us, that the congregation can work after our leaders, follow them well. God, ask that you would bring great character into our leadership so that we can trust them and the activity of this church can launch. We thank you for what you have given to us in this series. We thank you for the challenge in the book of 1 Timothy. God, bless the elders and bless our staff and bless our volunteers that you would be glorified and that your name would be known throughout Corona. We ask this in Jesus' name.